week, the Knesset's Constitution Committee restarted deliberations over pieces of judicial overhaul legislation after compromise talks in the president's residence broke down. 75 years after its foundation, Israel's rules of procedural governance are still unclear and clearly hot-button issues. But from the first announcement of the judicial overhaul in January, our guest this week, Professor Yedidia Stern, got to work in cooperation with other former heads of law schools and under the aegis of President Isaac Herzog, they came up with a first compromise solution, which was turned down. Today, he's bringing us another partial solution, what is called a thin constitution. Yedidia, who is now the head of the Jewish People Policy Institute, will talk with us about the procedural constitution, as well as earlier attempts in Israeli history to write a constitution and why they didn't work out. But when several months ago, Yedida brought the first potential judicial overhaul solutions drafts to Justice Minister Yeriv Levine, he didn't exactly receive the welcome he'd been expecting. I formed a group of 10 law professors trying to figure out a professional solution for the situation. And uh, we met with Rautman and we met also with Yeriv Levine. So when Yeriv Levine, the first meeting, uh, entered the room, he gave us a big smile. He looked at me, pointed with his finger, and told me the whole thing is because of you, Professor Stern. Find out how his former teacher was an impetus for Levine's work today as we ask Professor Yedida Stern, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Yedidia, thank you so much for joining me today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. This week, we have seen the restart of the judicial overhaul processes in the Knesset. We have seen many people taking to the streets in protest to the restart of the judicial overhaul. And I just ask you, in this week of restarting, what matters now? Well, I think that right now we are watching a very scary, dangerous point in our national life because it might be the beginning of a second round. We heard Ehud Barak and other people 
calling for civil disobedience, which I'm totally against it, but this kind of people saying this kind of things, obviously, it's a dangerous moment. I really hope uh, that uh, the government, the coalition, will find a way to go back to the talks in the present house, because I see it is the only way of handling the situation in a careful way, and we deserve it as people, that our leaders will talk to each other, and will not push each other to the brink of uh, some kind of civil war. Okay, amazing. The talks at the president's residence, uh, I always wondered, were they serious in any way? The political talks I'm talking about, because so many yeah. left the table, so many sent their B team to the table. Were these serious talks? Uh, Amanda, we're talking about three levels of talks. There's a professional discussion when you talk about the options of solving the issues one by one. And this kind of uh, talks, uh, I think were serious and the ideas on the table were convincing and I think feasible. But this is only the less important level of discussion. The second level is a political one. Each one of the parties is thinking about their constituency, about the future election, about the polls, and they're not willing to risk their status in order to reach some kind of sensible agreement, professional agreement. But the third level, which is the most important one, is the emotional one, the level of trust between the people around the table is very, very low. Based on uh, history, we know the history. So if you ask me if this is serious, it might be serious. Eventually, it depends on the will of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu. If uh, the prime minister will decide that he wants to reach some kind of sensible agreement, I believe the agreement is reachable. But I'm not sure if he made this decision. He's obviously in a not easy position because uh, in his coalition, uh, major parts of his coalition are against any kind of sensible settlement of the issue today. It, it seems there are many factors going into the idea that our prime minister would actually want to step in and solve the issue in some kind of way, because as you said, he has his coalition. Each part of it is pushing for a different part of the judicial overhaul. It's not as if all of them have any kind of consensus as well. And then he has his personal cases this week, we heard, too, the explosive testimony from Arnon Milchen in Case 1000 and Case 2000. So it, I just, I doubt, I don't know, do you think that our prime minister has any, I don't know, a desire to solve this? Well, I think it's his interest. I don't know about his desires. I think it's his interest because I think that if the situation will go on, we may be facing uh, not only demonstrations, but um, major damages to Israeli economy, and he cares about it, and this is his legacy. He understands it. The fact that after half a year, he still didn't put a step into the White House. He's not welcome in many places in the world, and that's his claim to fame. He was able to be the Israeli face for the world. So these two aspects, uh, economy and his status in the world, are going to be hurt dramatically, and I think that's his interest to do it. I'm not a political analyst, I'm a judicial person, but if I try to be a political analyst, I would say that uh, Netanyahu's interest is to go on with the process and not to reach any kind of agreement. Process might be his purpose, because it defers decision. 
and every decision from his point of view is not good. So uh, if I have to anticipate, I think eventually we'll go back to the Betana Sea for another round of talks and uh, maybe something will come out of it, but it will be minor. And you have to realize that even if we'll solve right now the dispute, the issues are still up in the air. We have a conflict here, it's identity conflict. The manifestation of the conflict is what we're seeing, the judicial reform and all the rest of it. But we need a healing process, which is supposed to be done by us as a people, not only by a prime minister. And uh, all solid patriot Israelis should come together and think about the future. We are in the midst of a cultural war. It is not solvable because we have different uh, visions about the future of Israel. But what we can do and we should do is find a way of handling these disputes in a fair way that is not, uh, uh, the winner is not taking all, but the winner takes care of the minority. Today I am minority, tomorrow you will be minority. It's up to us to make sure that the minorities will not be pushed aside. Okay, and in Israel, as we've seen throughout the history, uh, the person or the body that uh, protects the minority is usually the Supreme Court. Would you agree with that? Yeah. In today's Israel, the Knesset and the government, which are basically uh, one branch of government in Israel, the way it is in reality, they are more sensitive to the particular aspect of our national life, the Jewish aspect, either the religious one and the national one. While the Supreme Court of the State of Israel in the last two generations is perceived to be the one who cares a lot about um, human rights, minority rights, liberal aspects of our national life. And uh, when Yeriv Levine, our justice minister, wants to move power and authority from the judiciary to the political branches, he's actually trying to change the face of Israel to be more particularistic. And his allies are the religious and the ultra-Orthodox because they care about it a lot. But we have to realize, and they have to realize, that tomorrow they might be the minority. And if the Supreme Court will not be there to protect them as minority, who will protect them against the uh, majority's rule, which might happen in a year from now? So essentially, they're trying to change the rules of the game, but actually the rules of the game haven't really been written down. So let's talk about your idea of a thin constitution. First, let's talk about what what's a fat constitution as opposed to the yeah. thin. A normal constitution includes three parts. One part is the principle uh, of the state, the identity of the state, uh, the major declarations about who we are and what are we committed to as a state. So for us, would you agree that that's the Declaration of Independence? Might be, but um, more than that. It's also stating that we're a Jewish and democratic state, saying that uh, Israel is a nation state of the Jewish people, guaranteeing the status of religious uh, uh, sensitivities in the state, uh, talking about the capital, the language, etc., these kind of things, who we are. So we don't have that yet. We don't have that yet, that you're right. The second part out of three of a regular normal constitution includes a full bill of human rights. Uh, 
which includes equality, freedom of speech, etc., etc. Et we, we know all what we would like to have to guarantee our status in the state. Uh, so this full Bill of Rights we do not have. We have bits and pieces, but we don't have a full uh, um, Bill of Rights, and Israel is the only one with England and New Zealand in all liberal states that do not have a Bill of Rights, which is frightening in a way, and strange in a way, because the Jewish tradition is behind the idea of human rights. Maybe depending upon how you uh, decipher Jewish tradition. Well, uh, René Cassin, his Hebrew name uh, was Shmuel Katzin. He got the Nobel Prize for Peace for drafting and pushing ahead the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the UN in 47-48. And he was testifying, and I really feel the same way, that he was doing whatever he was doing, not as a universal person for the UN, but as a Jewish person, echoing his understanding of tradition. And I think it's very clear when you read. I mean, we read in the Parashat Shavua, you know, in the Torah portion of the week, just two weeks ago, Mishpat Echad Yelachem, one law, you'll have to everybody, to the citizen and to the convert. And convert is not convert, but it is the other. So it's very natural to have Bill of Rights, and we don't have it in Israel after 75 years. So that's the second part of a full constitution. The third one is uh, what I call thin constitution, and it includes the rules of the game. We have a debate. The debate is not going away anywhere. How do we handle the debate in a fair way, guaranteeing the rights of everybody in a sensitive and normal way? We're talking about three branches of government. Who appoints who? Who controls who? What are the relationship? These kind of things are basic needs for our survival. Right now, this is amazing, Amanda, Right now, in the last 10 years, Israel changed its basic laws, amended it more times than Americans amended the American Constitution from the time of its, of its inception, from the beginning. So obviously we're standing on shifting sands as a nation. And if tomorrow you have the chance to form the coalition, I guarantee and you're a good person, Nevertheless, I guarantee you that you will change the rules of the game to fit your interests, political interests, not because you are bad, because it's, it's an option and you can use it. And as a fact, all prime ministers in the last decade, that's what they did. Once they got the coalition together, they changed everything to fit their purposes. So the winner may take it all. And even more so, right now, once you form some kind of arrangement into a basic law form, and you can do it by a simple majority, you are secure from any judicial review by the Supreme Court. So the temptation is very clear. Why not use the, the thing if you can do it easily and you are secured once you do it? So right now we have this judicial reform, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, this judicial reform is trying to change some parts of the rules of the game. By the way, not a major part of it. It's just the beginning. I want to remind you uh, and our listeners that when Yariv Levine came out on the 4th of January with his reform, he was saying, I have four stages. This is only, only the first one. He never told us what is the rest of it. So we were taken, not to say kidnapped, into a journey without knowing 
what's next, what's the next step, and eventually what will be the final de- destination of this trip. This is unbelievable. And the whole thing is going to take uh, the form of basic law. And the court cannot help, apparently, according to Yeriv Levine. So this is very dangerous. So what needs to be done is a thin constitution, meaning we have to agree to put into our basic laws the relationship between the branches of government and to secure it by the need for supermajority in order to change it, amend it in the future. This will not make any kind of decision of, of values, of who we are. Do we have equality or not? It's a different question. The question here on the table is how to handle the dispute. So you're talking about codifying procedural governance, essentially. Yes, you, can, you may call it instead of thin constitution, procedural constitution. It's the same thing. But don't mistake it to be negligible. This is the, the basic terms for survival in a place like Israel, which is loaded with different ideas about who we are and where we want to go to. And so in this uh, thin constitution, would you include the major sticking point between pretty much everyone, which is the Judicial Selection Committee? For, for example, yes. It will come into, listen, Yariv Levine went into a toy store on the 4th of January once he was given the authority and picked from the shelves four things. He could have picked other things as well, some of them less important than what he did pick, and some of them are much more important. He decided to pick these things, and now we all talk about these things. But you have to understand that reality is much more complex, in a way more rich, and future government, and may, maybe even this government, will decide to take from the shelf another big deal and make it a basic law and secure it. This is so, totally, too dangerous to stay in this uh, situation. So yes, whatever he picked, Yerev Levine, is part of what I'm talking about, but it is only a portion, actually a tiny one. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. People say often that they were surprised in January to hear about this judicial overhaul, but it's not as if Yariv Levine or M.K. Simcha Rotman made any kind of secret of their plans. During the campaign, of course, the party platform for Simcha Rotman included most of what's happening now. And, and so I do wonder why everyone is so shocked and dismayed. Did they think that they were just dreamers? Well, there's a difference between somebody writing a book, Simcha Rotman, when he's not a Knesset member, and, and even when he's a Knesset member of a tiny party. There's a difference between this situation and when he is given the authority as the head of a committee in the Knesset to actually do it. I mean, the major shock, I believe, is because for the first time ever in the last 75 years, We have a coalition which is fully right-wingers, only right-wingers, 
never happened before. Netanyahu, I think, purposely took care in his previous governments to have with him in the coalition somebody, some party, who is not uh, right-wing all the way. Kahlon, for example, and others as well. So the first, for the first time, 64 Knesset members are apparently one block right-wingers, and they are able to do whatever they want. Now, the fact that somebody talked about in the in the past doesn't mean that in the public eye it became a reality. Also, I want to remind you that when Netanyahu ran for the election, last election, he didn't mention it as a big deal. He was talking about peace with Saudi Arabia, he was talking about economy, he was talking about uh, other things, not about this as a major flag. But the last half a year, this is the only thing we talk about. This is the only thing on his agenda, on our agenda. Like, it's unbelievable that as a state, we gave up on so many important interests and we focused on one thing because of, of an agenda of, uh, if I may say so, two, three people. It's, I, it's I not was, a national agenda. I was wondering if it's some kind of smokescreen and in another 10 years we'll read about what actually was happening in the, in the Knesset during this time period, but that's my conspiracy theory mindset. I want to bring you back to 2003, which was another era in which the Constitution was at least being talked about, if not very seriously being talked about for about three years. And spoiler alert, we still don't have a Constitution. <laughs> yes. So what bring us back to 2003. What happened then? Yeah, I, I was lucky to be part of it and to, to, to try to help to make a Constitution then. Uh, we were a group headed by uh, Chief Justice Meir Shemgar, Zichonor Levacha, um, and we were trying to put on the table, on the national table, a draft of a full constitution with everything, all three parts I mentioned before. And it took a while, and eventually we were able to draft something like this by consensus. But this was done at a time when we did not have a constitutional moment. What do I mean by that? Regular politics, each one of the leaders of a party thinks about his or her constituency. I have to be reelected soon. In Israel, it's always soon. You never know. So if I'll give up to your compromise, I'm betraying my voters. I cannot afford to do that. And you think the same way. So on a regular daily politics, it's really, really tough to reach a real compromise on major issues. And constitutional is, by definition, a compromise on major issues. Okay, region, state. Can we make a compromise now about the whole thing? Do you see the partners to do that? Each one of the parties, obviously, uh, will say, well, 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 I'm a leftist and I'm going to betray my voters. They will vote to somebody else. So when you have regal, regular politics going on, um, compromise on this kind of things is not feasible. As opposed to regular politics, a constitutional moment is a moment when people understand, everybody or many people understand, well, if we'll not come to terms into a compromise, the damage might be too great, too big. We do not want this. That's why we agree to come into some kind of uh, uh, compromise. In 2003, wasn't a constitutional moment. It was just another year. It was ahead of the disengagement, of course, uh, yeah. which took place during this three-year period. Not enough. Not enough. And unfortunately, what I'm telling you now, this is more important, I think that right now, as it is right now, 
this is not a full constitutional moment. That's why I think we have to ask only for, it's not only, but only for thin constitution or not a full one. Because right now, I don't see the people and their leaders agreeing for a national compromise on big issues. Let's talk about what are the big issues, just to remind people. And it seems as though what explodes a lot of these constitutional talks back in the 1950s, 2003, etc., now, are the religion and state issues. Am I, am I wrong? It's, it's one of the major issues, obviously. Let's take as a test case the issue of equality. Go out the street and ask people, are you for equality? Almost everybody will say, obviously, who is against equality? Ask rabbis. Ask um, people who live in the settlements, ask uh, Israeli Arabs, ask poor and rich people. Everybody will say as a slogan, yes, we would like to have Israel a place where equality is a basic value for our state. However, try to translate this commitment for equality into specific issues, and you will see that I think majority of Israelis will not agree. Why? So one example is religion and state. The status quo right now does not give us the comfort of equal treatment of all Israelis. Or even uh, Jewish Israelis, for that matter. Or women, to be more exact. Exactly. 51% of the population is not treated equally, unfortunately, by Jewish law on on marriage and divorce, or especially divorce, but this is the law of the land, because halakha is interpreted this way. Now, do you think that uh, Israelis agree now for civil uh, marriage and divorce law instead of halakhic law, Jewish law in Israel? Do you think you have majority within the Jewish population? Yes. Maybe. Do you think the religious will agree to it? Never. Do you think the ultra-Orthodox will, will agree to this? Even worse than never. So do you think it's feasible in reality, not as a declaration? And again, we're talking about consensus. In order for a constitution to give you what you want for the future, you need a consensus accepting it in the generation that forms the constitution. Otherwise, why a simple majority today will bind another majority in the future. So in order for the Constitution to help you, it must be based on wide consensus, I would say two-thirds, 80 Knesset members. So obviously on this issue, as an example, you will not find 80 Knesset members. What you're describing, it sounds like to me, is that, so we should put it to the side and wait for a better moment, but if you take the Israeli demography, that better moment is never going to come for equality for women. Well, first of all, I'm not saying what's right or wrong. I'm saying what's feasible. Okay? I may join, let's say, you, Amanda, in trying to change the law on these issues. But this is not the issue, what you and me are thinking. The issue is what can be done. And apparently it cannot be done now. I think it's pretty clear. So now you and other people are looking into the numbers of demography and say, well, it's going to be even worse. So I have two answers to this. Not answers, but two, two ways of looking at it. Number one, if you are true liberal, accept reality. And reality is the number of people who are citizens of the state of Israel. And you have, uh, I hear, many kids, and I have many kids. We have our share in demography. 
Um, each one of us is, should do whatever they feel they should do, but we cannot deny the majority of the future their ways of life. That's a liberal answer to, to the challenge. But I want to be even more comforting for you. I think demography um, analysis is um, something which is very speculative. Reality is that all servers or all anticipation about the future demography of Israel was proven to be mistaken in the past. You know, Ben-Gurion was around in 48-49. The national statistician, was named, his name was Professor Roberto Baki, told Ben-Gurion, Israel will eventually have not more than a million Jews. And he was an official, that's his profession, professor in Hebrew University. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, when we, people were talking about the demographic threat from the Israeli Arabs, not Palestinian, Israeli Arabs uh, sector. Because at the time, they used to have almost seven kids per family. Not, not anymore. Right now, the average size of Arab-Israeli family is similar to the average size of all Israelis. So the demography over there is going to apparently stay the same way it is right now, 20-21%. You are referring, you are referring to the ultra-Orthodox. I can tell you that my anticipation is that this is going to change dramatically in our lifetime, in the next two decades. First of all, you see the beginning of the change right now, it's going down the age of marriage for um, ultra-Haredi uh, couple is going up and up. The fact is that the more people going to work, and we know that within the women, in uh, um, ultra-Orthodox women going to work, we're talking about almost 80%. People go to work, they tend to have less kids. So I don't know what will happen in the future, but I wouldn't make it a major thing. And anyhow, what can you do? This is reality. Okay, that's all of that is really fascinating, and I appreciate that. And, and since you're kind of in your JPPI hat right now, I just want to ask you, what are you hearing about uh, how religion and state is affecting our relationship with the diaspora right now? Yeah, obviously the situation is very tough vis-a-vis the diaspora today. They do understand, the leaders of Jews outside of Israel, that if the Supreme Court of the State of Israel will become weaker, the status or the recognition in their beliefs in Israel, reform movements, the conservative movement, etc., is going to be hurt, it's going to change. Because as of now, the major advantages for the status of non-Orthodox Judaism in Israel is based not on decisions by the Knesset, by, but by decisions by the Supreme Court and uh, they should be scared of what might happen, and they are scared. When you were talking about earlier how uh, our prime minister may want to just see the process continue, I couldn't help but think of the Western Wall uh, compromise deal, which was made, ratified, and frozen. And that really burned a lot of bridges with the diaspora. Do you think that they've been built back since? Well, um, we are losing part of the diaspora in the sense that the differences between their um, belief system, the fact that they are liberals, the fact that they do not like Trump on one hand, and Israeli society is much more conservative, and uh, the leadership here 
is favoring Trump or the Republican Party. And we know uh, past experience of even people saying it explicitly, like Ron Dremer was saying it and others. These facts are widening the gap between Jews in Israel and Jews out of, outside of Israel. It is a tragic moment for us if we allow it to happen even more so. We know that the young generation of Jews in American campuses, they have to make a big, big choice between being Zionist and being acceptable on the campuses. Tough situation for them. When I went to Harvard 30 years ago, being Zionistic and my kippah over there was source of pride. Nowadays, at Harvard and elsewhere, just the opposite. You have to hide who you are uh, and obviously when you are 18 and 19, let's say you're raised in a even Jewish day school or, or in a Jewish environment and you go to Ivy League University or any other university and for the first time in your face you hear that what you were taught is the right cause of the state of Israel for survival and you hear what they say about us, this is really tough. So not everything is up to our government. And not everything is in our hands, and we're talking about a wider picture, but we have to be aware of the fact that right now the relationship between Jews and the diaspora, especially the young generation and the state of Israel, is in a crisis. I want to pivot us back to the judicial overhaul. Before I came here, I asked my husband, who studied law at Hebrew University, is no longer in that field, if he had heard of you. And he said, Yedidia Stern was one of the best lecturers I had during my studies. So that means, however, that you were also the professor for Yeriv Levine, who is in my, my husband's class, Dana Weiss, other people. And so you actually know the players, not just as a colleague, but you know them from a different relationship. And do you see that these former students of yours will actually bring us away from the brink once some kind of talks are renewed? Well, you never know. I can tell you a funny story. Uh, I formed a group of 10 law professors trying to figure out a professional solution for the situation. And uh, we met with Imcha Rautman and we met also with Yariv Levin. So when Yariv Levin, first meeting, uh, entered the room, he gave us a big smile, which is not uh, apparently the usual uh, case. He looked at me, pointed with his finger, and told me, the whole thing is because of you, Professor Stern. So I said, what do you mean? So he said, well, I took your corporate law class, and it was clear to me that uh, commercial law is not for me. So I had a different uh, career choice. So, yeah, but to answer your question, obviously, you never know what will happen. You have so many students in a class. You don't know them personally. I didn't know the guy personally. I also had in my class Igal Amir mm. in Barilan, and, you know, so uh, you never know. But I want to give some optimistic kind of thing. I don't think it's only bad. First of all, right now, Israelis, not only lawyers, people who are not lawyers, are not married to lawyers, um, are very much aware of the importance of law, of the importance of securing the status of the Supreme Court, of the importance of Bill of Human Rights. We became from, I mean, the, the, 
vast majority of people who are in the center in Israel were not involved in daily understanding that we need to protect our democracy. This is a new phenomenon. Each one of us went to work, had career, had family. We acted as individuals, which is normal for a liberal country, which is very prosperous, like Israel. The last half a year changed the whole thing. The awareness will stay with us. Big, big asset. Even more so. I think that we Israelis were known to have uh, heroism in the battlefield. What about heroism in the streets? Civil heroism. Nobody anticipated that we'll be so brave. We as a nation. Not necessarily the left, the center, also the right-wingers. We all came out to the streets, many, many of us, on a regular basis, and there's no violence. It's unbelievable. From historic perspective, I think people will look at us and say, wow, what a phenomenon, what a success. I'm not talking about what will happen eventually with the arrangement. I'm talking about the social phenomenon. This is an amazing uh, occurrence, amazing happening. And I want to add something which people usually do not like to hear. The police is functioning amazingly well under the boot of somebody. Nevertheless, we're handling the situation without major violence. Try to find another democracy, liberal democracy, obviously not a dictatorship, but another liberal democracy that was able to do that. I think in America, if you'll have the same kind of proportion of people coming to the streets, Americans will go into civil war. It's not happening not because of, of a miracle. It's not happening because we have a basic solidarity between us, despite the different vision and despite our leaders and despite the way we talk and despite social media, etc., etc. Nevertheless, being, I mean, looking at my people, I feel that we still feel part of the same fabric. And this is an asset we have to keep and maintain and, and make sure it stays with us. I worry about what may happen when all of those who have taken to the street some 100,000 almost every week for the past almost 26 weeks, all of those who have adopted democracy as their religion right now, those who are regularly practicing their religion by waving flags every single week, I personally worry when, if, when, in the end, they don't get what they want. And for some, it's a very totalitarian view. It is to knock out the government, of course. But what will happen when, if, all of these people, hundreds of thousands of people at, at certain points throughout the entire nation, what will happen if they do not stop the judicial overhaul? Well, number one, I don't think it will happen. Um, you know, a major book written in the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard by two professors, empirical study of the success or failure of demonst civil demonstrations in democracies worldwide. I think 160 cases were checked. Uh, if 3.5% of the population uh, is coming out of the street in a non-violent way, in a persistent way, there's not even one case where the majority was able uh, to have it their way. 
the demonstrations were successful if they're nonviolent, and this the amount is three and a half percent. They call it the rule of three and a half percent. In Israel, we have three and a half percent and even more. Number one. Number two, it is obvious that eventually some kind of agreement will come up, and we see already that Netanyahu said this week that he's not going to go forward with the, the judicial reform for the next level, beside of the reasonless. So we know already that it's not going to happen. But if it will happen, I think uh, Israel will face chaos. And since Netanyahu eventually understand that this will be his legacy, that's what his grandchildren will study in civic studies class event in, in 30 years. I don't think it will go this way, and I think we can see it already. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm optimistic. <laughs> okay, Yadidia, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Amanda. The Israeli Knesset's English language website has this to say about a constitution. Quote, Israel has no written constitution. Various attempts to draft the formal document since 1948 have fallen short of the mark. And instead, Israel has evolved a system of basic laws and rights, which enjoys semi-constitutional status. This provisional solution is increasingly inadequate for Israel's needs, and the necessity for completing this historic task has never been so urgent. That was written in 2003, ahead of the talks for the Constitution by Broad Consensus project, which I discussed with Professor Yedidia Stern. One can only wonder how Israel would look today had a constitution been ratified 20 years ago. Special thanks to Charlie Summers, who helps me with the What Matters Now transcripts. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Pod Waves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.